Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, you're all very welcome back to the Sadly Soul podcast with me, Andrew Millen, as your host, as always. It's episode 54, and our guest on the show today will be Johnny Owen, writer, producer, actor, musician, radio show host, and in his younger days, he was a bit of an amateur boxer. I have to say, his CV makes very impressive reading, and he joins us today to chat about life, football, and we'll also get an insight into The Three Kings, documentary film about our own Jock Steen, Bill Shankly, and Matt Busby, which Johnny directed. This episode has been kindly sponsored by the Ratton family, who are listeners. Thank you very much to Tony, Jed, Kieran and Eamon in Sunderland. And they leave me with a little message, Celtic and Sunderland till we die. Thank you very much, boys. And if your business or Celtic Supporters Club or Rich Uncle would like to sponsor the podcast, we would love you to sponsor the podcast. Sponsor an episode and we would be delighted. Please email us at info at and you can contact us through the website or message us on social media where you'll find us on most platforms. If you're a listener or reader, or both, you can support our independent Celtic Fan media platform by visiting CelticFansing.com where you can become a member, you can subscribe, you can buy some of our merch, or you can donate for the price of a point. Your support will help us to continue to produce quality independent fan journalism, the fanzine, the podcast, some video content, and once we can, we will get back to doing some free fan events. Folks, keep all the suggestions coming in for guests. We are reaching out to them all, and some of them have come on, some of them have said no, and some of them have said maybe when Neil Lennon leaves because they don't want to put their head on the chopping block. And that's ex-players, folks. Everyone seems to be hiding under the duvet at the moment. And also keep the comments coming in because we love a little positivity around the place in these dark days of lockdowns. So here's a few comments we received since last week. Hi Andrew, hope all is well with you at this time. Just finished listening to the Paul McQuaid podcast. Absolutely fantastic listen. My mate and I actually went on the Warford Walk with Paul in July 2019 and Eddie Toner was also there. It was one of the finest Celtic related events I've ever been on to be honest. The Johnny Doyle books sounds fascinating. I've seen the wee man play in the late 70s, early 80s. What a player. And him and Tommy Bones in the hoops is a special memory. Best wishes, keep up the great work and stay safe. Hail, hail, Alan Mack. 
Thank you very much, Alan, for the comments. Another Sunday morning, another Sunday morning run before watching the hoops with Celtic AM, and that's our Twitter handle, for company. Great stories, great relief, great story of Johnny Doyle standing on the steps of Oibrox singing the Celtic song. That comes in from Rory on Twitter. Keep up the good work with the fanzine and podcast. That comes in from Glenn Stewart and Fermanagh. Back in episode 45, we spoke to Henry McGarvey and he told us his stories about living beside his hero, the late, great Bobby Mordick. And it brought back some memories to some of our listeners. Joe Bannon, who commented about the game against Leeds. I was there that night with my dad and two brothers. Fantastic game. The crowd was brilliant. So was the result. Although I don't think Billy Bremen was too happy. Well, John Haggerty commented, Bobby's goal against Leeds at Hamden in the semi-final of the European Cup. Attendance of 134,000 one of whom was me, remains a record for a midweek match. Boys, I'm glad we could uh, bring you back to Hamden on that night. What a night it was too, and it was great to have Henry on talking about his hero, Bobby, which gives us ideas for other podcasts, so keep listening, folks. And don't forget to check out CelticFansin.com for daily news and articles, our opinion on the current team and some great historical articles. Loads of timeless articles posted in the library to read, including David Potter's weekend long reads, which are proven very popular. So get yourself a coffee or a beer, sit down and read some of David's stuff. Absolutely brilliant. And there's been some lovely comments coming in on David's article about Willie O'Neill entitled Remarkable Man and Genuine Celt. Here's a few snippets of the comments. A true gent met many a time in Baird's Bar. That comes in from John Glavin and Cork. A gentleman, Pasek Flynn, says in the league. Told me to quite and down early doors one Saturday during close season. I shut up. That comes in from Dan Foley. A sound man, says Jerry Keneally. A gent, says Brendan Madden. And Mac Gillenart, and I hope I pronounced your name right, spent a few hours in his company years ago. True gentleman and a Celtic legend. So as I said, folks, keep all those comments coming in. Keep listening to the podcast and keep reading the website. And don't forget to buy the fans in. Fair play to Neil Lennon. Now that's not something you hear often these days, but fair play to him for coming out and speaking out against the continued abuse of James McLean. He knows what it's like for James. He has walked in those shoes. Social media can be a great thing, especially now with lockdowns and keeping in contact with your loved ones. But it's also a swamp of filth. And these people who think it's okay to do this type of thing and send such foil messages need to be outed and dragged through the courts. Absolute scum. We JB has had the same treatment from these vile people. A boy with Down syndrome who has only ever brought joy into people's lives. Aidan McGeady, another one, declares for Ireland and gets booed in every ground in Scotland. Just had to get that off me chest, folks. Anyway, apart from yet another attack on James McLean and his family, what else has been happening since the last podcast? Well, we've had the financial report from Celtic. We're down six million, it looks. But I'm sure the 12 million that was brought in in January through player sales will balance the books for that one. We had the long-awaited statement from the chairman, which, let's just say, got a colder response than you would from the wife if you had stayed an extra day on the beer in Glasgow after a big win. The Green Brigade are behind a new fan group, Celtic Shared, and re- have released a mission statement. Plenty of statements at the moment, folks. And on the pitch, Celtic recorded two wins against Aberdeen and St. Johnson. But many think it's too little, too late, but we have to back the boys in every 90 minutes, and we have to back them to win every game. Fair play to everyone who donated to the Kana Foundation to keep football free for kids. Absolutely outstanding. Special mention to the Homeboys podcast for kicking it off, and for Eddie, Toner, and Mark Bork for driving it. And to the CSCs who kicked off the donations, Nave Park in Dublin and my own club, St. Margaret's. This is a great Celtic fan-driven story at a time when there's a lot of negativity around. 
And another heartwarming story is former Celtic man Lou McCary and his work with the homeless through the McCary Foundation and the COVID pods they created for the homeless. Absolutely outstanding. Well done, Lou McCary. Johnny Owen is a writer, producer, actor, musician and a radio show host. In his younger days, he was also a decent amateur boxer. His CV makes impressive reading and he joins us today to chat about life, football and the Three Kings. Hi, Johnny. You're very welcome to the Celtic Soul podcast. Firstly, congratulations on the Three Kings. It's standing viewing, not to mention the soundtrack. At a time when we are served up reality tripe TV almost 24-7, films like this are a breath of fresh air. Or as my good mate Hilly said after watching it, fucking brilliant when men were men. So how's it <laughs> been during these strange times? Yeah, I'm all right. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a strange old time, isn't it? I mean, um, it's been nearly a year now. So, yeah, I was just glad to get the film out in the end, you know, and I'm obviously delighted with the reaction it's had. Uh, we were chatting just before we started recording and somebody, my mate said to me, you were dead sneaky with this. You know, you did Celtic, Liverpool and Manchester United. you got a decent fan base there to be uh, <laughs> to be trying to crack into. So, yeah, but I'm delighted with um, the reaction it's had because I, I, I always admired the three men anyway, but I, I really fell in love with them when I started doing the film and, you know, got into the research side of it and sort of studied their lives closely. And um, it was a pleasure and a, a privilege to do it. And, you know, I always say that generation of men and women are leaving us now. The, the, the people of industry, as I call it, you know, worked in the in the coal mines and the shipyards and the mills. So, you know, I just wanted to document, you know, a generation that's, that's dying out now, really, that's leaving us, like I said. So I was pleased to do that. Yeah, and it's done beautiful, Johnny. It, it's kind of unusual, whereas you're not actually sitting, you know, there's not someone sitting interviewing. It's made up of old footage and old interviews, and it seems to flow so well between the three supposed stars of, of the documentary film. Big jocks what drew me to the film. I'm a Celtic fan, and like most Celtic fans, we know about Jock in detail. I've been lucky enough to interview many of the players that have played under him, and I spent some time with the man. You know, Jock's story is amazing of the changes he made when he came into Celtic because a lot of the players were there before he came in, and they can really tell how he became, you know, what the club has, has become. His, he started what the club has become. And I've also been lucky enough to spend some time with the late, great Sean Fallon, who was his sidekick. And he was in his 80s and he gave me such, such an insight into Jock. And then Sean Fallon's son, Sean Jr., has also given me an insight into maybe Jock Steen, who, when he wasn't at the club, when he was out socially with his dad or whatever. So for me, I'm attracted straight away because it's Jock Steen. You're, you're a Cardiff City fan. You're Welsh. What, what attracts you to Jock Forst? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, actually, because my father was uh, worked underground, you know, uh, as had my grandfather and all my great-grandfathers. And that wasn't unusual in South Wales at all, especially the valleys where I come from, with Tidville, a really famous mining town. You know, most of my classmates, you know, were fathers, worked in the industry. You know, I'm nearly 50, Andrew, this year. Um, uh, but, you know, it's amazing now that there are no miners left in South Wales. There were a quarter of a million of them at the start of the 20th century. You know, it's the reason why we were there. You know, nobody lived in the South Wales Valleys until they discovered steam coal. So I wanted to, you know, I, I was always interested now. My father, as a lot of people, my father passed away in 2017, would, would often do, they'd often point out other miners when they came on television. So when I was a kid, for arguments, if you ever Shankly came on or Busby and Steen, he'd go, oh, they were a miner. Now, they'd worked underground. He was quite proud of that. And Steen in particular, I remembered, because he'd worked 
obviously underground, but then his first sort of professional job in football when he was full-time was in Clenetley, famously. He came down there for, they had a bit of money. They were only in the Southern League, but they had a, a rich backer. And it only lasted about 18 months, two years, but they had enough money to buy in some players. And they brought Jock Steen down, famously. Um, so he kind of like, he was somebody that resonated with me as well. You know, the three of them did, and Steen in particular. And then this really strange thing happened where I was at the game in, in Ninian Park where Jock passed away. I was there that night, Sporting Wales. Uh, and Scotland again had got to a World Cup finals instead of Wales. So I remember that night vividly, you know, when he passed away. I was with my father and my grandfather that night. And I remember leaving the ground and word spreading via transistor radio, as it was in MD, very quickly. And I just remember the Scottish fans leaving from the away end, thousands of them down there, and the quiet spreading through their set of supporters, the Welsh fans were quiet anyway because we hadn't qualified. But I just remember the silence of my father and my grandfather driving home, sort of like barely talking about the fact that Steen had passed, that he meant so much to them. You know, we were Welsh, but Steen was a man of of the mining industry, you know. And my father had grown up, um, and my grandfather, my father was from a Catholic background. He was non-practicing by then, but, you know, he was a Celtic fan, you know, from the sort of the great team in the mid-60s, the Steen team. So these things uh, sort of stayed with me. And then by some quirk of fate, I go to Glasgow to play football as a kid um, with the supporters group from Merthyr Tidville who had, had uh, a thing called with Queen's Park, bizarrely, um, and uh, through the fanzines. And I stayed in Jockstein's old house. Now, the lad that I was paired off with, a boy called Kevin Devine, um, he lived in Jockstein's old house, which was remarkable, really, in King's Park. So he seemed to sort of resonate with me through my life, you know. And, and, a, and a, quite a few of those boys from Queen's Park, him, Stephen Fox, were massive Celtic fans as well as being sort of being involved with Queen's Park. So they took me to games. So he took me to some matches, you know. So I kind of like, uh, this is in my late teens, early 20s. He was he was a presence all my life, really, Steen was, funnily enough. And I, I ended up making a film about him and finding out stuff about him and being even more um, impressed by him the more I found out about him as well, as I said earlier. You know, I was kind of, I was always a huge admirer. But really when I got down to the real detail of what he was like as a player when he went to Celtic and the effect he had as a player there, but obviously, like you said, the effect he had as a manager, what he did, you know, what you just said, Andrew, he didn't mess with things too much. You know, he knew what he had and he developed that. Uh, and then the the almost instant success he achieved with, achieved with Celtic. I I say this quite often in interviews because I get asked this question. I've been asked it in Manchester and Liverpool. If you had to pick the three of them, you know, if I was if I had a time machine and Merthyr Town won the, um, the Euro Billions and I was the owner, and I had to pick one manager. I would pick 1967 Jockstein to come back and take control of that football club. I do think that he was probably the best domestic football manager that's ever been in the game. And, I, and I, I'm absolutely certain what Celtic achieved in 1967 is the greatest achievement of any domestic football team in football history. And that's without question from anybody because they won every single cup available to them they could, they could possibly enter. They won a very competitive Scottish league with a really, really fine Rangers team in that league as well who also reached the European final that year. And then they won the European Cup, beating one of the great European teams ever, huge pedigree into Milan. They'd won it. You know, they, they played a very defensive style of football. And then on top of that, the one thing everybody said that couldn't happen was them to concede an early goal. And they even overcame that. So that's what, you know, I found out through this film. I I, I started as a huge admirer of Jockstein. I left an even bigger admirer of Jockstein. Yeah, I, John Fallon writes for the fanzine and John was the goalkeeper. He was on the bench in um, Lisbon, but he was the goalkeeper in 65 when they believe that 
this was the start when when they beat them Farman in the cup. Jock's old yeah. team, yeah. Uh, but the players, but no, every time I interview any of the players, they look at that game as as big even as Lisbon because yeah. it was the start. They believed then that they they were walking taller and Jock had done that. And be, because before that, you know, the chairman was probably picking the team. Yeah, yeah, which is crazy, like, but. You know, that's football for you. And he, he was kind of, and I think Shankly and Busby were probably that breed as well, where they weren't building a team, they were building a club. Yes, I mean, it's really interesting you should say that, Andrew. You're absolutely right. Busby, they say, was offered the Liverpool job first because he was captain of Liverpool. Um, but he didn't take it because he wasn't given full control of the football team, which is really, really ironic, isn't it? So he goes to Manchester United and, again, you know, becomes extraordinarily successful very quickly. Genius, really, Busby, you know? Um, and then when uh, the time comes in the late 50s when Liverpool are struggling and um, they look for a recommendation on who to get in, they go to Mark Busby and ask him who he would recommend. And, of course, he famously says, you know, you should get uh, Bill Shankly. And it's a great story that uh, Jimmy Murphy is opposite him. And Jimmy Murphy was a Welshman, like me from the Valleys. Jimmy Murphy told the story till he died. But when he takes the phone call, Busby, he puts the phone down, he turns to Busby and goes, I just recommended Bill for the Liverpool job. And he says... I might regret that because he'd be on our arse now. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you know, what, what a man that he knew that he was recommending something to do with good with job that would become a fierce rival, which he did, but he still did it. You know, there was nothing about him that, you know, in his side where he'd go, well, maybe I shouldn't do that. That's, I think, the measure of those men. And the same thing happened with Steen. Steen famously is the reserve team manager of Celtic, very, very successful. As Alex Ferguson says, his, his reputation was, was growing all the time. You know, he had the quality street. Uh, no, it wasn't the quality street guy. It was the, it was the Billy McNeil youngsters coming through. But he um, he, he can't, he's, he's almost told he's not going to become the manager of Celtic because he's a Protestant. So he goes to Dunfermline to prove himself. Well, doesn't he, doesn't he just, he hits the town like a tornado. He wins the Scottish Cup. They beat Valencia and Everton in, in Europe. This is Dunfermline. So then he goes to Hibernian. And then, you know, I spoke to people who were in Hibernian as well. Within six months there, he's turned that club around. You know, they won the Summer Cup. They're flying up the league while Celtic say, you know, you're going to have to get this fella back. And like you said, he, they get him back. They win the Scottish Cup famously. And like he says in the film, it's a great line, Christine, that broke a lot of barriers for a lot of people. Once they believe they could win that cup, they believe they could win anything. And um, I, I was lucky enough to do the uh, the Brian Clough uh, documentary, I believe, in Miracles, where he won two of the European Cups and the title and the League Cups. And very interestingly, as you say, Andrew, they won what was known then as the, the Anglo-Scottish Cup which was a long-forgotten competition, which was between some of the top teams in, in Scotland and England. Uh, and he says he remembers that night the players, they won something and they, they got a taste for it. You know, they, they, the Forest team were like, and he said he turned to Peter Taylor and said, they, they, they'll go on to win more stuff now. And I think it's very similar to what you're saying about Celtic. Once they won that cup, uh, the 65 Scottish cup, that set them on the road then. They believed they could win any trophy and they did yeah and the, the winning mentality you know to instill that in players I, I done a, show, a live show with Ray Houghton one night and someone asked a question about how you know how Jack Charlton had changed the, the mindset of the Ireland team and we started to qualify for major championships and he just named the team and every one of the team was trophy winners you know Paul yeah. McGrath had won, won the FA Cup the Man United boys Everton Sheedy the Liverpool players had won everything. Ronnie Whelan had won, won the European Cup. Packy, Mick, Chris Morris had done a double at Celtic. So he said the whole team was used to winning. He said the problem yeah. now is with Ireland, he says the players are not used to winning. And, and, and that's how Jock changed Celtic. He won. It's, it's a great, it's a great um, debate in football and I totally agree. Obviously I'm Welsh and everything changed with Gareth Bale. 
you know. Um, even Chris Coleman, the manager, said that, you know, and the Welsh FA will say it. He just was a winner. And other players say, you know, he was winning European Cups with Real Madrid. So he said, when we were in, you know, France for 2016 Euros and Wales had that remarkable tournament, you know, players were saying, we'd look at it, look at him. So he just never felt the pressure. He didn't. He was always the same all the way through it. And he was used to this. He'd been playing for Real Madrid. He'd been playing in a highly sort of, you know, uh, pressurised arena constantly. So it was natural for him to carry that on. And I think you're absolutely right when you see that island team that I remember, the great island team of the late 80s, early 90s, that did brilliantly in tournaments. You know, they beat England in, in 88 and, you know, and did fantastic in 1990. They were full of Liverpool, as you said, Everton players, Manchester United players. They were just used to winning. You know, and that's a huge thing. Once you, once it's, there's, a, there's a famous saying in football, isn't it? Winning and losing is a habit. And I think it's so true. You know, we see it with teams that get relegated and it's very difficult. They drop through the leagues, don't they? You know, we've seen it with Sunderland, Stoke. Losing becomes a habit as winning becomes a habit, you know. And Manchester City, this last few weeks, we've seen they've started winning matches. And once you start winning matches, you just seem to win by hook or by crook. And that's exactly what Celtic did. And that's exactly what Manchester United did. And Liverpool, under these three great managers, they were just, they were obsessed with winning. I was thinking about this the other day and I was talking to a mate about it. And Steam was... Um, Played some wonderful football, magnificent football, just loved it. But then somebody was saying that um, he loved nothing more than a, than a, than a skanky 1 0 away win, like a ricket, as they call it in Scotland. And they where he loved nothing more than a win where you, you'd sneak it 1 0 away because he just loved winning. He didn't care, you know. And they were saying that Steen again would, would say that he hated losing and playing well. He hated that more than anything. He'd rather play not well and lose because he didn't like where teams and um, fans can sometimes go, oh, well, we played well and the signs were there. That was the Nisma to Steen. Steen just wanted to win football matches. And I think that's why Celtic became the greatest team in Europe sort of around that time. And, you know, that, that carried on right through into the late 60s to reach the final again. He was just a born winner. They all were, the three of them were. They, so all they were interested in was winning football matches. Yeah, and I think as well with fans, sometimes as fans, we we, we get used to winning. The, the current Celtic yeah. team, we, we've got used to winning. I got interested in Celtic in centenary season through an older brother. He was living in London. Yeah. And he was sending yeah. me back fanzines and programs. And at Christmas, he came home with a video and a book. And that's how long ago it was. It was books. So we didn't get much Celtic over here during the centenary season. And there wasn't, especially where I was, there was no supporters club or, or anything like that. So I remember we got uh, the centenary final highlights after the FA Cup final. And I remember watching a Frank McAvaney who, who I've... You know, he was the hero of the day, and Frank. I've yeah. had Frank on the show, and I've done live shows with him and everything. And he just, he's just a great character, you know. And the Glasgow boy that done well, and just head case at times. You know, I was looking forward to going to see this team. You know, but you're saying, how do you get over to Glasgow? At that time, a flight was ninety nine punts yeah. to go to Glasgow yeah. but it was only 15 quid to go on the boat and there was a club called Nave Park had started to run buses from Dublin so now we had it we, we didn't outly. but my first game well I actually like yourself I've done a bit of boxing and we were yeah. going over the boxer Scottish team and uh, part of the deal was you know the coach had said you know whoever gets selected for this team we're go- for this we're going to go to see Celtic you know so I was yeah. saying I'm on this trip 
you know. <laughs> and, uh, I remember a couple of nights before, he said, look, he says, well, I was like welterweight. He says, no, like welterweight, he says. And I said, I'll fight anyone, you know. I ended up fighting a middleweight. Oh. And uh, <laughs> it was the biggest mistake of my life. Yeah, I know. I was, I was about 16 or 17. He, he was coming to the end of his career. He was a bit early 20s. And every time he hit me, I, oh. I could still feel the thumps the next day when I was in Celtic <laughs> Park. But it was it was amazing. So I just thought Celtic Park. We played them Barton in the cup. We beat them, and I was delighted. That I was I'd arrived. I was at my first game. Yeah, I didn't know that this team that had done the centenary double, you know, would win one cup for the next ten years. You know? Yeah, so, yeah. And we got used used to as fans. We got used to not winning. Yeah. No, and if we got a win against Rangers or you know that like that cup final, even though it was it wasn't a great game, but it was such a relief. And as fans, we just got used to, I suppose, losing. And then when when the good times came, yeah, they were amazing because, yeah. you know, especially like stopping the ten was amazing. But the Martin O'Neill era when we started to play in Europe and we got to a European final and it was just so for fans, I can imagine the fans and especially all the fans I've spoke to in Glasgow, you know, they waited so long for Jockstein to come. Because the fifties, yeah. the fifties, apart from the seven one, there wasn't a lot to cheer about. Yeah, all, yeah. all of a sudden they had nine years. Yeah, and yeah. we've just had nine years, so history has repeated itself. You know. Yeah, it has. Yeah, but it all goes back to the winning mentality as we speak about. You know, Dad, I mean, it's interesting because I know I know John Robertson quite well. Obviously, he was the uh, Martin's assistant for a long time, and very very affectionate about. Um, about Celtic Football Club, and he, and he was brought up, uh, he supported Rangers as a kid, you know, he's, uh, he's from Addingston, uh, but absolutely loves Celtic Football Club. And uh, it's quite a funny story, because I remember the centenary year very well, I, obviously Billy was the manager that year, and as soon as had just gone to, to Rangers, I remember, and I think he'd won the title the year before, and then, you know, Billy del- delivered the, uh, the title on the, on the centenary year, which was a fantastic thing, and they wore the old badge, you know, with the, with the Celtic cross and stuff. It was, it was I remember it vividly, but I, I, I always say this story. My dad, the first time I'd ever heard the words Celtic, Glasgow Celtic Football Club, I was, a, I was a little kid. And when we were kids, you just would pick up football tops because, you know, any football top is a football top. And it was like, it's not like now where you get replicas, blah, blah, blah. And I don't know how, but I'd, I'd managed to get hold of a Rangers top. So I've got this Rangers top on and I'm walking through the house and my old man never bothered with stuff like this. He says, what tops are? And I, I think I said something like, Scott, it's a Scotland top. He goes, not a Scotland top. He said, it's a, it's a Rangers top. I went, oh, it's from Scotland, somebody said. And he said to me, I'll never forget it. He went, you should support Celtic. And he'd never said anything like that before. And I remember going, why? And he went, well, you know, you're Welsh for a start, you're Celt. And I'm from a, my grandmother's family and his side were from it's Cork people, right? From Skib. So he said, and your family from, um, you know, from Cork. All right, that's what I said. So I was like, so... I'm, I'm, what am I? I'm a Celtic fan. Am I? And he went, well, yeah, if you support anybody in Scotland, you should support Celtic. Right, okay. And that was the first time anybody ever sort of explained anything like that when I was just a little kid. So that's where, like, kind of my ears pricked up about this about this football club. And then I ended up, like the same, going up to Glasgow and spending time. And they took me to games. And I, I remember going, again, I'm showing my age now, Andrew, when it was still standing behind the goals and things like that. You know what I mean? So I've seen the, the redevelopment of the stadium and things like that. And a bit like you were saying, Archie McPherson gives me a great line in the uh, the old Scottish commentator in the film where he says, when Steam goes to, to Celtic, Celtic was subjugated by Rangers at that point. You know, they were they were dominated by Rangers and he had to turn that around, really. Um, and he said, he started doing that and he said that became, you know, the most 
the most important thing to him was to win in that game as well to, to jock uh, and everything else built out out of that. And that was a bit like what happened with Martin and and Robbo went to Celtic. Robbo said to me, you know, Rangers have been very strong. Uh, they stopped the nine in a row, but under Martin, it was the first time where they were they were able to to really sort of like you know get a foothold and win some trophies against again a really really strong Rangers team at that time. They really battled it out didn't they, for those few, few years. Celtic and Rangers, like were, I think Dick Advocat was there, wasn't he? And, and and you know they had some good players. Ali McCoy obviously was in his in his pomp, but you know they were two really really good teams and both doing well in Europe. Um, but yeah, I sort of it's a, it's. They say this thing that they that it's um it's a it's a special football club, you know, it's not like it's not like any other football club. And you, you discover that don't you, when you when you go to Glasgow and you and you visit them and then I've I've seen it around the film really. It's more than a football club in so many ways, Celtic. You know, it means more to people, you know, what it what it was born out of and where it came from and you know, and the the philosophy and the principles behind the club, you know, that was meant to help Irish immigrants in the in the East End of Glasgow and then what it's become really the people Across the world, really, you know, it's uh, and it, it was it was a great experience to be part of that. The, the club as well, I've got to say, the club were brilliant with me when I did the film. Helped me no end on stuff, you know, everything they could do to help me, they did. As did Man United, as did Liverpool. So you get a feeling as to why they're great football clubs, you know. You, you, there's a there's a there's a reason why they end up being, you know, what they are in the world of sport and football because of the way they are with people. I, I you know I couldn't speak highly enough of the of the help I had from people. I'd sell when I said I was making this film, you know? Yeah, I, I'm laughing back at um, the Rangers jersey and going yeah. to your dad because uh, it's been done on me, but I wasn't wearing the Rangers jersey. <laughs> my my brother-in-laws are Liverpool fans. And yeah. um, where I live, United, Liverpool, massive. Yeah. Massive support. And South, South Wales the same. South- Celtic has, has, a, has a big support. There's a, there's a support. There's a local supporters club. I'm in, I'm in one out the road because it's going longer. Um, yeah. we, like, and we'd be a big, our supporters club is quite big. We have 120 season book holders. But that was built from one guy, uh, Hilly. He came back from walking in England and travelling up the games. Yeah. Joined, the, joined the club in Dublin and started to run kind of buses from our area. And then he just got too kind of big. And the, the club said, look, why don't you farm your own club? So he went off yeah. and farmed his own club. So, And I don't want to be disrespectful to the Liverpool and Man United fans in the area. But what, what we have, you know, a regular travelling to every game, home and away, it's, it, yeah. it's a bit more, it becomes a kind of a lifestyle choice. Because you yeah. know, a lot of the lads, they've been. I wouldn't have known them if you know outside Celtic, because we 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 moved in different. We lived in different areas. We were into different things. But they've become, yeah. they've become my best mates now. They've become you know, yeah, yeah. And it's a kind of a sad cliche, you know, or becoming family. But you know, Celtic has become a family, and the people yeah. have met over the years. But back yeah. back to the Rangers jersey. I'm not man for wearing a replica jersey, but obviously when when you have. My only son, my only child, you know, he was brainwashed into following Celtic. And yeah. every, every time a strip would come out, I would buy him the strip and I'd be proud bringing him through the airport to a match, which he had yeah. no interest in or on the bus yeah. again because he was too young. So his, his brothers found a, a, a Rangers jersey in a secondhand shop <laughs> and they sent him home one day in a, and he just walked in, you know, and, like I was like the big bully, you know. I went, where did you get that? You know, and get that off. And, uh, the poor little child started to cry because he didn't know what was wrong, you know. Because he, he yeah. said, like, I don't have a blue one, you know. And so uh, 
that was like a similar experience to what happened to me. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, all right, okay, you know, you just need that older guy to go, no, 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 let me tell you. It's like, all right, okay, I get it. No, well, thankfully, he's never worn one since. <laughs> there you go. I was just saying. <laughs> While we're talking about kids, um, now you, you would have done so much promotional work for this and, you know, talking to Liverpool, United, yeah. you know, selling yeah. podcasts and mainstream media and that. But my, my listeners are going to be interested in you because not just because of this documentary, because you see, a CV, as I said, is it's quite impressive. You know, for for a man, a young man like me, my age, yeah, <laughs> you're Cal- you're a Cardiff City supporter. Yeah, and look, yeah. I don't. If the listeners don't worry, I'll come back to the Three Kings later. The same age as myself. Uh, yeah. We both did a bit of boxing as uh, youngsters, which I think yeah. gives, you, it gives you great grounding. You no, know, it gives you it gives you tears, a few slaps, and so much joy when you win or you win you win a title. It's it's brilliant. And yeah. again, again, like like the Celtic community or the football community, the boxing community is great, and it's a real yeah. class thing, you know, and includes everybody. Like when I was young, the travellers weren't really doing much sport, but they were always welcome in the boxing club. And yeah. I, they become good friends as well, you know, and um, over the years. And in America, I hooked up with John Joe Nevin, who, who won a medal in the Olympics and that. And we, yeah. we could actually sit down and talk about boxing. And we knew kind of, yeah, we knew the same coaches. And we knew, so and it, it, it was lovely. But look, as I said, the same age as myself. We grew up at the same time. Now, the same political and social backdrop, the same wonderful musical soundtrack, which mm. you know, it was, I, I keep telling people, music, the soundtrack of music of my life is just amazing from my brother's records to going to the local disco and just gigs and life was just I think it was a bit more simple then before the internet because now you seem to have to you have to tell everybody what you're doing 24-7 back then it was if you told people the stories they wouldn't believe you anyway no no they wouldn't take us back take us back to growing up you spoke about your dad there being a minor obviously humble working class beginnings take us back you know and, and and tell us your journey because you've, you've gone on to do some great things yeah I'm I'm from like I say in a, an old mining town with Tidville which is a great town to grow up in I, I was very lucky to come from there very big extended family you know lots of cousins a great local school you know all the cliches I lived them you know football over the field with like you know 30 aside uh, all that kind of stuff, you know, everybody obsessed with football and, you know, then it was the Welsh rugby team and all those kind of things. And I, I was very lucky that uh, Merthyr was a real famous boxing town. You know, I think it's the only town in the world with three statues to boxers, Johnny Owen, Howard Binstone and Eddie Thomas, really, really famous names in boxing. Um, and the local boxing club was great because in Merthyr, it was like going to a local football club. There would be like 30, 40 lads in there on the bags. Do you know what I mean? It was not unusual. I wasn't unusual in any way at all. And you know what? I got an absolutely true story, Andrew. This week, my old boxing uh, mate Brian uh, was a very good fighter, British and, and uh, Welsh champion, and my old trainer Gareth Donovan, who I think has got at about thirty-five British and Welsh champions. Great amateur boxing trainer. They found an old video of me boxing, and um, what used to happen to me was I used to vomit in between rounds. That was my thing, and um, you know all the stuff I've done in my life doesn't matter. They still merciless with me because they found this video. And they go, look at him; he's still spewing up in the middle of the rounds. And Gareth was saying, "So have to take a special T-shirt just for me after I box and all the rest of it." Anyway, I happened to win this fight that um, they showed. But you know, the banter on the WhatsApp group—you know—it was brilliant. It's exactly as you said. It's like being family. You know what I mean? You're like, you know, he's still not holding your left hand up properly. Look at him; there's nothing in his right hand and all the rest of it. You know, it's like it was great. So I was very lucky that I had all that, and they're still my friends now. You know, I still see them. 
when I get back, I try to have a pint in the mall and all the rest of it. Very much the same going to football. I was uh, I was I used to go and watch Merthyr Town and Cardiff City. They were always my teams and all the boys I used to go with. I still I'm still friends with them. I still see them when I go back to Wales. Um, and it gave me a great grounding in life because you know I was given like books. You know I was given books like Train Spotting. Somebody gave me Train Spotting. Somebody gave me Quadrophenia on VHS. Somebody gave me a tape of the Stone Roses. So because of it all, I was having this great education, not just watching the football, but culturally as well. You know I was starting to be open. My eyes were opened up to things. And there was a fanzine in Merthyr, which was called um, brilliantly called Dilemma for Merthyr after the old Hitchcock film. And, you know, that was through that that we went to Glasgow for the first time, you know. So I was travelling as well, you know. I, I was really interested and impressed by what you were saying, where you managed to get off, you know, on a ferry if you needed to, to go and watch, to go watch Celtic. I did the same. I went to watch Wales play Ireland, uh, the Republic of Ireland, uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. And we used to go across the ferry and we'd spend a few days in Dublin. And they saved the Welsh Football Association because the home championships were scrapped. And the Irish FA, God bless them, said they'll play friendlies with Wales and split the gate money the Welsh FA talk about this quite a lot we were very lucky that we happened to coordinate with the time when the Irish team went through a real golden era and had some fantastic players so the crowds were massive at Lansdowne Road I think we even played you on a on a racing track once which has turned into a, a football football pitch so you know I, I went over many times to Lansdowne Road to see Wales playing uh, in football and rugby and all the friends I had and the life I had and going to gigs and I went to see the Stone Roses and I went to see Oasis Early Doors and all those kind of things life just seemed brilliant you know very rich all the boys were dressing in a certain way you know all the casual gear like you know we were all wearing you know all the stuff like Lacoste and Paul and Ralph Lauren and C17 jeans and gazelles we were obsessed by it you know what I mean but it all seemed to um, leak into one another everything seemed to be the same you know you, everybody kind of got a a great taste in films, it seemed to me, and music, and fashion, and football. And it all seemed to sort of blend, really, into one thing. It was a lifestyle. That's the way I can describe yeah. it. It was a real lifestyle, you know. Yeah, today, I think young people, you know, they think they... they be, and they, they can become famous for being a YouTuber or an Instagram or, or you know... They, they, without, and fair play to them. If they're making money at you know, it beats walking. Yeah, yeah. But, like... <laughs> I think they've missed out a bit because when I was growing up, obviously we had the boxing club and there was football teams and we have the Gaelic, we have Gaelic over here. And I yeah. I grew up in yeah. a big council estate called Ballsgrove and there was other estates around and yeah, it was great. It was a great place to grow up. But I left school in the late eighties and all my brothers had gone to England to walk. And my dad had been, he'd been there in the fifties, you know, and he, he spoke about, you know, there's no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. And he yeah. didn't want me to go because I was the youngest. He said, no. So I, I ended up just, you know, getting, I suppose a crap job with crap money, but I didn't have much rent because I was the only one at home then, you know, and yeah, my yeah. brothers were away. So the, I was, I was, my dad walked for Irish cement all his life in a factory at shift walk. So I grew up in a non-celebrity world, just put it that way, you know, a really yeah. class like yourself, but I was massive into ska music. Yeah. I loved ska music from, from an early age. And around 89, there was a big revival. So, you know, Seliga, yeah. Seliga doing the centenary double and there's an underground revival. It was, yeah. it was, it was all around the world, America, London, and the fanzines were coming in and mates of mine started a band and Leslie passed away a couple of months ago and um, they were called Trenchdown and they were a punk ska band. And they went right. on to play, they went on to be quite big, not quite, but big for us, right? But they created a scene I became the fanzine writer. That's how I started writing, you know. It wasn't yeah. because I wanted to be a journalist, right? But I wanted to be part of the scene and I couldn't play an yeah. instrument and I was too lazy to learn. I couldn't <laughs> sing. 
<laughs> all of a sudden in Drada we had this scene and people would come American skinheads and rude boys would come to Ireland and they would think that this Drada was going to be this metropolis of ska music but it wasn't <laughs> it was based around a couple of council estates and you know, the, play, the, the venue was called the Boxing Club it was an old boxing club a shithole but a great thing and as you say, you know, the Stone Roses, Quadrophenia, all that stuff merged into it. It became a kind of a scene where, you know, everybody had a little part to play. If I suppose if social media was around then, we probably wouldn't have got, you know, we probably wouldn't have been so active in trying to. Yeah. But it was like sport was a way out, you know, a way out because back in the late 80s, there wasn't a lot happening. You know, walkways no. and that. You know, a lot of immigration. So sport was a way out. We were lucky enough, Gary Kelly went to Leeds, Ian Hart. Yeah. So we had yeah. some success with that way. A couple of the boys in the boxing club went on boxing the world amateur championships and that. So they, there was pride in that. As I said, the band, the lads that joined bands went on and you know made made a career out of playing music. And I started a fanzine, and then years later I got I started the Celtic one, and it just it just kind of kicks on from there. And like, but that whole, as you say, that whole scene of growing up in in, in that area and. The football leads to so much, you know, style, fashion, music. It's brilliant. And like when you when you watch some of the programs now that are made about that time, you know, and yeah. it just brings you like your own girlfriend or your partner, I'm not sure what the and this is was it this is England. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, she's bringing us back. She brought me back so many years. You know, that program brought me back. And it's as if now, but you know, will will the next generation have be able to write like that? Will they be able yeah. to produce these brilliant programs? Because we're now living in a kind of a the last kind of thing I was probably the rave scene and since then Yeah, the rave there's been nothing really. The tribes as they call it. I'm I'm I'm, I'm quite good mates with Noel Gallagher now. We have this chat quite a lot as well. And um I think even Weller said it that I think, and I'm maybe I'm biased here, we are going to be biased anyway, but 1988-89 to be our age then, to be 17, 18, 19, around that time, I think we caught the best era of all. And I'll explain why. It was the 50s and 60s, but the 60s, you know, is, is in a sense, was around King's Road in London. It was a few roads. It didn't really happen in places like, say, like Merth, the Tidville and all that. You know, it did to an extent, but nothing like... You know, then by the late 70s, you know, you did have punk and all that, but that could be quite violent and tribal, especially, you know, in Britain where, you know, it was you were taking your life in your hands. Sometimes walking to a town centre in the early 80s and you were dressed like a mod or something. So you had to be able to look after yourself. But I always felt by the late 80s, like you said, where it all kind of merged into one and then rave was starting and people were going out. I felt it going over to Dublin for argument's sake. I felt it when I was in Manchester. Whereas I felt that people were like, wanted to stay out all night. And, and, and have a good time. I felt like there was a feeling in the air that we were breaking out and into something. And, you know, because of time and the internet has changed things now, I think we caught a time in popular culture in that late 80s, early 90s, which I think, and I may be unbiased because I was young then, I may often say that, but I do think I was incredibly lucky to be around then because you could do whatever you wanted to do. You could do whatever you wanted to do. Like you said, you could start a fanzine, you could be in a band, you could put a gig on, you know, you could you could wear a certain clothes. You could go to you know to Glasgow to watch a football match and be back. You just could do all those things. And and you know, like you said, back just a generation before that, they had other things to think of. The money maybe wasn't quite there, or the jobs, or the, the infrastructure to travel, or even the clubs 
were all shut down by 11 o'clock midnight. It was only a... But I felt it was everywhere. Like you said, you could do it in Drogheda or Merthyr Tidville then. You know, you could do it anywhere and say, oh, I'm going to go out for a night and one of the boys has got like a rave night on <laughs> in, in the local youth club. And you're like, what time's it finished? He's like, three o'clock in the morning. And you're like, no, this is, this is something a bit different. And I felt it in the air. You're right. I felt it that time. It was like, everybody was, everybody was just up for a good time. Sounds sounds strange, but they did, didn't they? Yeah. Well, I've, I've been on buses where, um, you know, we've left on a Friday evening and arrived back on a Sunday morning. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and no hotels. No, you know, this was a day trip. This yeah. was how long yeah. it took to get the, to go to football. But you had you had everything on them buses. You had, if you're on a good bus, you could watch a video. Yeah. You know, once the party started, you know, every, yeah. you know, everything went on. And like I was looking off, I've travelled on a bus, which was known as the party bus, because there's no drinking allowed on the buses, on the supporters' buses, you know. You could drink in the ferry, but you couldn't drink because they kept getting in trouble on the buses and that. But we, we were lucky enough, we had we one rule on our bus, and the only rule we had was there was no rules. So maybe that's why we attracted so many people wanting to travel on the boat. <laughs> There's a great word they've got in um, in Celtic, uh, Celtic, uh, Gaelic, Irish, cr- the crack. You know, people say that, C-R-A-I-C. Yeah. That's what it was like. Everybody was, the crack was just great. Like I said, the banter, and you could do what you wanted. You know what I mean? You could have a few pints if you wanted. You could go and have a, a curry at two o'clock in the morning. That's what changed. It was just, it just seemed to be something in the air where, Everybody was up for um, for the crack. You know, that's that's the perfect expression I can describe. And like I said, if you're on a bus, it just seemed like everybody was sort of like in that kind of party mode. I hope it comes back. I hope with what's happened to the world this last year, that people will get back to that now. Everybody will be like receptive to sort of going out as much as they can. I mean, just going to see Celtic for argument's sake. I'm I'm going up as soon as I can. As soon as you know, they're letting fans back in, and we've all done what we need to do to continue to get to a safe place. I'm going up. Do you know what I mean? I'm not going to start to do that thing where I go, oh, you know, I've got up in six months. I'm just going to just yeah. going to go. Do you know what I mean? And I think I think everybody will have that attitude. I hope that leaks into the world for the next, you know, year or two when it all opens back up again. It'll be great if it does. But I think as well, because now we live in this, you know, as I said, social media, smartphone bubble. Back in the day, you know, we're called the Celtic Dars now when we get... A lot of abuse after younger fans on social media, and someone posted up the other day. You know, you need permission to criticise Celtic from the Council of Celtic Bars, and I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> I, put, I put it in a headline of one of the articles. It was a match report, and I put it. And then I started getting abuse from the Celtic Bars because they hadn't read the article. You know, so but, yeah, but the players, like we spoke about the Martin O'Neill era. I could walk into a bar in Glasgow and bump into John Hartson. And yeah. John's a pal. I, I, I've known John. You know, he's a great lad. You yeah. could walk in, and John would, you know, chat to the. He would be chatting to the fans. You would see Neil Lennon around the city. You know, going back further, Tosh McKinley. Um, you know, all these players, Frank McAvenny, They would. They were approachable. If a footballer, if a footballer sneezes now, it's all over social media. It's. I've been at meetings. Where or at events where, like, I'll give you for instance, Alan Thompson came up for the cup final against Hart, yeah. and we were in a hotel, and a lad came over and he says, "Can I get a picture?" And Thomas said, "No problem." And because I always say it's when they stop asking, you should be worried, like you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he gets up, takes the picture, and the picture goes on social media, and I see it on social media, and someone comments, "Oh, oh, I see Alan Thompson was up." And the guy that got the picture said, yeah, he was a prick to me. I was there. I took the picture. Yeah. And I went, oh my God. Like, and, and all of a sudden, there was just a thread about Alan Thompson. 
So you cannot blame someone who's in, like yourself, in the limelight, or like a football player, or like a rock star, saying, I'm not going there. I love Paul Heaton and go to all Paul's gigs and you'll always see Paul in the pub close to the yeah. venue after, right? Because Paul just He's doesn't great. he just yeah. doesn't do but I think it's because his his fan base, um I mean, he wouldn't like the, the word fan, I suppose, but you know, those who go to see him, they're not that type. They buy into what he's all about. But yeah. like, like, I'm sure if you were out and you're out with your partner and any picture can be taken of you and posted up, but you know, it, it's yeah. kind of invading your privacy. And I think that's I think that's what the distance now is between the current players and those of different eras, because they can't yeah. do anything or they will be all over the tabloids. And it's that it's that you're right, because when the the, the the problem with that is, and I totally agree, is when somebody says he's been a prick. That's out there then in the world. And then somebody else will read that who wasn't there and go, oh, he's... And that's that's sad when that happens because, you know, you just go, well, somebody's making an opinion on somebody and obviously looking for attention or what. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? But, and that's a shame then because that's in the world. And, and, yeah. and it's it's the unfairness of that because you're quite rightly there going, he wasn't. He was fine. Do you know what I mean? And that's that's where it becomes, like you're saying, that's the difference. That's the biggest difference in football in the last 20 years or 10 years, certainly, is social media. I think what used to happen was we'd all go to a pub probably after a game or whatever, have a bit of a, a moan if we'd lost or enjoy it if we won, and then it would kind of dissipate. You know, there would be the back pages, but that was it. But now, you know, there's a 24-hour news cycle around it. Now, I'm not, you know, I'm part of that. I've I got a show on talk sports, But, you know, if you need to fill that appetite for 24-hour news, you know, it's, it's, it becomes a relentless thing for content, you know, and that's the difference in football now. So, you know, you get the phone-ins of somebody, you know, clop out for argument's sake last week, which was ridiculous, you know what I mean? So you, that's where you end up, you know, and, and that's where the Celtic does would probably be like me, where I'd be going, you know what, for, for years, when I was a kid growing up in Cardiff and Murphy, yeah, I, I can never remember anybody saying they wanted to manage it out. If you lost the football match, you lost the football match. We can't all win. That's the thing. <laughs> so it was like, you just go almost so, well, he's the manager and that's it, you know, and, and, and that's the way it is. But now, the pressure is so intense, you know, I mean, I think Chelsea were a big part of this and it's really hard to argue with the uh, stats of Chelsea, but I think they've, they were, they're 13 managers in and I think they've won more trophies in that time than any other English football club, more than Manchester United. So it's really hard now to go, well, you should keep your manager, you know, you, should, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't change things because actually the evidence shows that Chelsea Brands they have won lots of trophies. So I'm not saying I'm right. All I'm saying is a bit like you were saying earlier, Andrew, it was different years ago. You didn't you never you never mourned really about the manager. And the board, nobody ever mentioned the board. I mean, I just I don't I can never remember anybody saying anything about anything like that. So these are different times now. And like you said, because of social media, everybody knows who everybody is. Everybody's got an opinion on them. Everybody's seen stuff about them, which might be true and might not. So therefore, you get all this different world that's created where, you know, it's much more pressurised, I think. Well, trust me, uh, I was around in the 90s when we did ice the board. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we did, yeah. Fergus McCann came in. And we actually had David Lowe on the show, who was one of the, he was one of the kind of, uh, he was Fergus's right-hand man. No, he went yeah. at the shares. And we also had Matt McGlowan on. And Matt was... Uh, Sells for change. That was the fan-driven group, you know. So it was I so interesting that. to get. And it's funny, one of the old directors has contacted me through something else. So if we get him on, we'll have the full circle to get them all on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he may yeah. not be a popular guest, but you know, it would be good to get his side well, of the story because he he did um, he did side with Fergus in the end. He did, you know, he done the right thing in the end. But I just I, I always find, but you know, with football fans, um, we can be quite left wing and quite you know 
the union member comes out and us sometimes when, when we're talking about the board, they have a professional job to do. But, as, you know, as fans, we want, you know, I wouldn't say instant success, but we want, you know, we, we don't want them getting paid the big money unless we're winning. If we're yeah. losing, we don't want them getting the big money. Yeah. You know, yeah. when we're winning, we kind of, maybe we're not questioning so much. And that's yeah. just the nature yeah. of the beast. But look, yeah. I want to get back to the, to the Three Kings. Yeah. As yeah. I said, my journey to, to Glasgow took me from the late 80s. I've been lucky enough to travel throughout Scotland and throughout Europe with Celtic, you know, win, lose, and mostly we lose it, you know, away from home in Europe. We've had a couple, <laughs> you know, we had that brilliant run to Seville, but it's it's always been, and I've been lucky enough as well to go to fan events in North America and, and Asia. Yeah. So I know how big Celtic is, and at the start yeah. of the of the Three Kings, you know, just billions come up, you know, between yeah. the fans who support these three clubs. Man United, Liverpool, and for me, as as I said, I kind of I kind of know the Stain story, so it was great to you know to look at the Busby and the Shanky thing because obviously from the same working class background, yeah. mining villages, miners, oh, as Stain, but I think it's like Shanky really stood out for me, you know, and I, I will I will now start to read more about Shanky and watch and yeah. learn because he was he was a man I would have followed. You know, yeah, if he yeah. was my union rep or, you know, my boss, he was definitely getting on my, you know, captain in the boxing team. He was definitely getting my support. He was just so... <laughs> yeah. But what they did do is when they came in and built these clubs, they built them for the working class people, you know, yeah. that they could relate to these people. And their life is the daily grind of going to work and going for a pint. And it, it seems like a million miles away now with the lockdown. But yeah. to get out to football, and you must remember, it was, a, it was a five and a half day week back then. So to get yeah. to the football at three o'clock on a Saturday is brilliant. Yeah. To go for yeah. a pint is brilliant. But to actually have success with your club. And all three of these built up especially Shankly, like, I just think that Liverpool team, and as you said, Busby recommended him for the job. And he yeah. comes in, he comes in, and he just, just the team he built, and I just loved him. And then when he started saying the Celtic were the greatest team and Steve was the greatest manager, you know, yeah. I'm going, right, Shankly, you know, you are my, you are, you are now my new best mate, so I'm going <laughs> to follow you. And I was so sad in the documentary. Yeah. When he died, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He um it was he was such it was such a difficult thing time for Liverpool that when he retired because he was such a colossus, you know, and the city loved him so much. And you know, Paisley took over and you know there was a, it was difficult that transition, you know, and it was the same with Steam uh in, in Celtic and, and the same with Busby Man United and Manchester United are going through it now with with uh, Alex Ferguson, you know. It's when somebody that that coloss like a colossus like that, you know, leaves an institution, it's it's very difficult for them. I mean I mean, Shankly, what I love about Shankly was he gets to Liverpool, right? Finally, he goes by Huddersfield, Grimsby, Workington, and, and, and you know, uh, Carlisle. He gets there and he's like, right, these are my people. I'm home now, Scousers. And he tells them that, you know. So, and he's, you know, he's saying those things like, like you said, he's saying to them, well, I'm just one of the people who's on the cop and they like me and I'm like them. Well, if you're a guy on the cop, you go, well, I'm having this fella because he likes me and I like him. So you're in, you know, straight away. And then he starts winning football matches, you know, and he starts buying players from, Scotland, like Ian Sinclair and Ron Yates, who laid the foundations for Liverpool to become the great football club. Uh, you know, Steen, that great story that is um, said about him before one match, he doesn't even give a pre-match talk. He opens the window of the dressing room and he can hear the boots of people come into the game and he goes, see that lot? That's who you're playing for this afternoon. You know, the thousands turning up the other day who've just finished work from the pits and the dockyards. That's who you're playing for. Well, I'm like, I'll run on a pitch and die for that. Do you know what I mean? Of course I would. And that's what they had, you know. Busby talking about the Mills and Trafford and, you know, this is my football club. It means everything to me. They all had that, you know, and they were all 
they're all from Scotland. They're all from a very specific part of the world. You know, I talk about it in the film. It was unique. Football took off in Scotland. Like, anywhere, anywhere else in the world, record crowds were always broken in Glasgow. They developed a certain style of play, which was different, certainly different from, from England, where it was much more kick and rush, village to village. You know, you still see it now in Ashenbourne, where they chase this ball on a river, a very physical game. Scotland didn't play like that. They played a very, you know, cerebral type of football on the deck, short passes. So they developed modern football in Scotland. And I think it's a bit of a... What's been forgotten a lot is the Premier League's become such a beast because it's such a huge thing. It's such a money-making machine. And it's got this whole industry that we've just spoken about around it. But people have kind of forgotten a little bit how important Scotland was to the history and the development of football. And that's what the film tried to do. You know, Scotland, I think, have still only lost two or three games less than England in the... You know, in the times they played each other, this is a nation of 5 million people compared to a nation of 50 million people, like 10 sizes population. Remarkable, really, when you think of it, that they've only beaten. And it'll happen in the Euros. England think they'll beat Scotland easy, the younger generation. They won't, trust me. Scotland will give them a hell of a game because it's Scotland. It's what they do. And these three men come from an area where everybody was watching football. Everybody was playing football. I mean, if you think of Shanti, right, what you just said, all his brothers are professionals, right? All his brothers play professional football. It's remarkable. Five of them from the same house. His village was obsessed with football, right? He says, all I knew, all I knew was football. He said, I would talk about it all the time. I'd play it. And then when he play, becomes a player, he said, I was obsessed with becoming a manager. And like, you know, I always say to me, people, Andrew, the place where he comes from literally doesn't exist anymore. It literally doesn't exist. There's nothing there. Yet here's this place that existed 100 years ago that produced you know, one of the greatest football managers of, of modern time that uh, is a direct influence on one of the greatest sporting institutions of all time. So you've got to document that. You've got to make a film about that and about, you know, what's happened then? What's happened? Why is that place gone? Well, the mining industry is gone. You know, the mining industry, which gave us Shankly the way he was, you know, which he, he believed in unionism, as you said. He believed in working together. He believed in socialism. You know, he didn't want to... Earn, he never understood money. The three of them never understood money. They couldn't... What happened in the late 60s, early 70s was... When players would come in and ask for money, extra money, they couldn't get their heads on that. They'd be like, well, what do you want more money for? You're playing football. Playing football for Celtic. Playing football for Manchester United. What's the matter with you? What do you need? So all these things where the game is changing directly, you know, as, as a conflict with the way they've been brought up where they just go, look, as long as you've got enough to eat and you've got a roof over your head and you can play football, that's enough. You know, that was enough for them. And they took that with them all their lives, you know. And I think that was the basis of why they became so successful was because they just thought of football and nothing else. They were just obsessed with football, the three of them. Like I said, Shankly arrives in Liverpool, he arrives amongst his people and he literally opens his arms and goes, right, we're all in this together. And of course, Scousers, I love Scousers, who doesn't, you know, Scousers are great. They're there, oh, we'll have this fella, you know, I'm having this guy. So that's it. They take off together. And I think, you know, the DNA of the three football clubs is all there in the men. If you go to Anfield now, you know, the fact they lost three games on a trot at home, it's like the end of the world, you know, because they go into to Bill's house and Burnley beat us at Bill's house. You know, that's the attitude. Because how dare they, you know, whereas Manchester United, the way the Busby was, loved playing great flowing football. Well, you know, Man United fans were never going to put up with, with Mourinho. You know, they just weren't. They were just going to analyze not us. You know, we're Busby, we're Busby's boys. You know, we play football a certain way. And then you get Celtic, you know, it's like, <laughs> I mean, Celtic are obsessed with Europe even now, you know. You don't make it up the groups, it's like the end of the world because it's like, we're Celtic, you know. We're the most famous 
one of the most famous teams ever to win the European Cup. First non-Latin team. First team from Britain, you know, with Celtic Football Club. So it's like, so you just did your reaction there. You know, it's like... You, you, you know, see, see, Johnny, right? <laughs> As Celtic fans, we feel sometimes that the board just want to stay one step ahead of Rangers and that'll do us. Yeah. Well, it will yeah. do some fans, you know, but it yeah. won't do a lot of fans. We want to be in Europe. You know? Yeah. We're, we're realists and we know that we don't have a team to, to, to win it. But we look at Ajax. Yeah. You know, in the Dutch league and how well they've done, you know, they got to a semi final. You yeah. know, if you, if you don't think big, you're not going to be big. You know, no, we, no, we, we have to start thinking, we, you know, we have to start thinking outside Scotland because we're the biggest club in it, we're the richest club in it. I know things haven't worked out this year, but we do, yeah. we do have to start. And Europe is the benchmark. And yeah. I've said it before on the show. The chief executive shouldn't be paid by how much money the club makes. Yeah, Club clubs should be different than other PLCs. He should be paid on, you know, getting to the Champions League or getting to the, the last 16. And then I tell you one thing, you'll see a chief executive walking his ass off. You know, I'm telling you, because, you know, money corrupts. But as I said, I'm watching that as a Celtic fan. But I, I have a completely different view of United than I have of Liverpool. Yeah. And, and I've no interest in either team from when yeah. I was a child. When I was a child at school and there wasn't 24-7 football that there is now, yes. it was a treat to watch football. Yeah. And in the 70s and the 80s, especially European games, Liverpool were the best team. They were. And I, I had school friends and they're still Liverpool fans and they still go to Anfield. And the newspaper was Liverpool because you never seen Celtic. I think the first time I seen Celtic TV was Sports Night, Nottingham Forest. Yeah. Mid-80s, maybe 86. 83, 83, yeah, yeah, yeah. 83, well, there you go. And I remember looking at the fans going, yeah, hey, fucking nuts. You know, yeah, yeah. The Celtic fans. They were in that corner. Can you imagine yeah, yeah, the amount of book fast that was drinking whiskey on the way there? Yeah. I can... <laughs> so so they, they were the story of the childhood. So there was a kind of a romance for me towards Liverpool. No, it wasn't Shankly. Yeah. I don't remember Shankly. It was Bob Hazy, I think. Yeah, so there's a bit of romance there for me as a kid watching the red shorts. You know, before I started following Celtic, you know, I, I was a Coventry supporter. Don't ask yeah. me why. Yeah. You know, maybe because the specials came from Coventry. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe yeah. it was something. Yeah. Or I think there was a manager called Millen at one stage, same song. Yeah. But it yeah. wasn't because, you know, so Liverpool was the team that was on the TV. But then the 90s came along, Sky Sports came along, the Premier League yeah. came along, and Man United were the team. They were, yeah. you know, the team, Ferguson's team. And we talked about replica jerseys earlier. Replica jerseys then became, you know, there was people with four different replica jerseys from the same season because there was yeah. the way jersey, the European jersey, the disc jersey. Yeah. And we also, Sky Sports wasn't in everyone's house then. So we yeah. now had a new fan who had the jersey, sat on a stool, had never gone to a football match. He wouldn't support his local team. And now he's sitting at the end of the bar lecturing me and my yeah. mates and my Man United are the greatest team so you know and we've just come back off three days on a bus to see Celtic get yeah. beat yeah yeah, yeah. so this I kind of I kind of I got a, a dislike towards United not towards yeah. the lads that go to you know to go to see them you know on a regular basis or getting a ferry or, but I started to dislike them because they were successful yeah. and the pub was full of these people that you know, even though they were mates, they just pissed me off so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so when I look back now, when I look back at the two managers and these two clubs, it's night and day. Yeah, football now it's twenty four seven. But yeah. that has proved to me. You said yeah. you touched on it. You know, you're got, you're not saying I'm going to do it in six months. Yeah, lockdown has proved to me now that TV will never match match day atmosphere. Whether you win or lose, no. a day out with your mates. Can you imagine? Yeah. Someone taking that away from me, and for twelve months we've had it taken away from us. If yeah. someone told you that last, 
say January, you would have said you're off your head. Yes, that's like something. That's like something you've seen in, in a science fiction book. Yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden, we've lost what these wonderful people that were down the pits had at three o'clock on a Saturday. We've, yeah, and you know, do you know, Andrew, it's really interesting. I think this is why the film has been people have taken it to heart so much. It's been so successful. Everybody that I've talked to the film about has picked up on one thing: Jock Steen saying football is nothing without fans. And that saying is now seen everywhere. You see it in banners in Germany, in Poland, South America. It's amazing how Jock's statement has rung true and has taken this for us to realise he was absolutely right, wasn't he? Yeah, but can I reverse that on you, right? I was banging on, when we started the podcast, I had the Dartmouth fan on, Frank, he's a big Celtic and Dartmouth fan. I had him on one of the early podcasts. I had Joe Miller, who does not the view fans in. He's a St. Pauli fan. And German yeah. football was back on the TV and I wouldn't watch it. I was going, I'm yeah. not watching. I was, I'm not watching TV. Without. As soon as Celtic came back on TV, I couldn't get enough of it, right? Even if they were playing <laughs> crap because it was something to do. It was something, oh, yeah, to, you know, it was to do. I think that's fine. I think that's fine. Fans without yeah, football yeah. is nothing either. You know, and, yeah, exactly, and as bad yeah. as it is having to watch these empty stadiums, yeah. it's it's just a bit of a release. And same watching yeah. the boxing. The boxing came back last Saturday night, Valentine's yeah. night, you know. I told me missus we'd get we would ring a restaurant and get food and you know. She didn't know yeah. she was gonna have a tray on her lap watching the boxing. <laughs> <laughs> but because I'd waited so long for her to come back on, Danny, it's been brilliant, for right? But you, like everyone that comes on to this show gets into my time machine. Okay. Yes. Because yeah. I, I know, and, and it's an imaginary time machine, but it brings us back. But what I want you to do, Johnny, right, is yeah. I want you to take us back to a time of Shankly, Steen, or Busby, to something yeah. in the film. Take us back yeah. to something there. But on your way back, I want you to stop off on one of your trips to Glasgow. I I I love the story of um, of the the European Cup final. I, I, you you might have heard it, but where obviously I don't know if you know this, but Steen. <laughs> Steen was obsessed with the players staying out of the sun because he thought it would weaken them. <laughs> so they were never allowed to... So when they went to Lisbon, it was beautiful weather. They weren't allowed to, um, they weren't allowed to catch any sun's, sun's rays because he thought, you know, it's the worst thing that happened to them. And the story goes that um, when they come out for the final, they're in the, um, the tunnel, and you come up the tunnel, you come up the steps, and you famously into the, onto the pitch. And as they come out, the, uh, the Italians have all... They've greased themselves up, and they all look absolutely magnificent. I mean, they're all like sort of these really beautiful Latin-looking men, tanned, cut in, the, in that really famous Inter Milan kit. But even when you watch the match now, it looks very impressive, isn't it? And they all come out and they stand there and they look they look intimidating. They're the best team in, in Europe. They have been for a few years. They're all huge. They're all statuesque athletes. And Celtic come out and they're all, they're all these pale asses from Glasgow, right? You know, proper sort of like Scots. And as they come out, there's little Jimmy Johnson, a ginger as well, and he starts singing, Hail, Hail! And they all join in. <laughs> and he says, all these Italian lads, look at them and just say, what the fuck is this going on here? And then two of the players have said, from that moment, we knew we'd win. We just knew we'd win. And I love that story. I think that beautifully sums up what was what it was to be a working-class Scotsman, which they all were, playing for Celtic in a European Cup final. But they just believed in themselves. You know, they believed they, they believed they were from a part of the world where they should have been on that stage. And it comes back to what you just said. You have to have high expectations. And if you're singing in a tunnel before a European Cup final when you're playing the great team of that era, well, you've got a chance, haven't you? Brilliant, brilliant. And can you just imagine them, the fans? I've been, I've been lucky enough to interview some of the fans that were there. And um, like they, the money they spent to get there. Ah, oh, unbelievable. And drove there. 
something and took him a week to get there. And the best thing is, Shankly goes there. Of course he does. Of course Bill goes. He's like, I was the only manager there. Of course you were, Bill. And he says they took a terrific support. 15,000. I was like, fucking 15,000 in 1966 to Portugal. I mean, it was, it was a fascist country then. It was in lockdown. You couldn't get in there. And I'm like, how the fuck do you get 16,000 Celtic fans? Just brilliant. Do you know what I mean? It's one of the great stories of European football. It's one of the and great you, stories. You know, so, some of the stories, I always say, you know, even some of our own bus stories on some of our own away trips, like like going to see Celtic and Cumbra Town in Ninian Park. It took yes. us 27 hours. <laughs> <laughs> I was there for the game against... Um, into Cardiff. Do you remember that one? They played it in, yes. in Ninian Park. And there was a Ninian Park was full of Celtic fans because into, into Cardiff haven't even got a, yeah. a team. But there was thousands of Celtic fans. I met my, my mates from Glasgow that day in, in Queen Street. And I come on the bus and they were all outside the class at the castle, sitting on the green bit, drinking flags yeah. everywhere. And I was like, Celtic are in town. <laughs> is it, is, is, think of it like 27 hours to get the card to watch Cumbra Town. And this is the truth. We left straight after the game. <laughs> so, like, um, well, if you, if you um, when it all eases down, and when you, next time you go up to Glasgow, we'll try and coordinate and we'll have a beer before yeah, the game. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be great. But before before yeah. we do that, right, just yeah. just uh, just give you a quick story before you get come back in my time machine, right? Yeah, just on, on buses, right? Because, you know, you hear these great stories. But when, when Celtic played in Hungary, on the run to Lisbon, played in yeah. Hungary, and a bus left Glasgow, <laughs> and it arrived in Hungary for the match, you know, East East Europe. Can you imagine like all the borders they yeah. to get there? Yeah. And the, the, I don't know how true this story is. I, it may not have been the Lisbon year. It may have been another year. But if the bus took that long to get back, they missed the second leg. <laughs> 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 now, I don't know how true that that is, but it's a, oh, a brilliant story. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So so look, you're in my time machine now. You've took us back to Lisbon '67. I think all the Celtic yeah. fans want to get, go with it if the time machine. Was <laughs> well, look, you've been up in Glasgow. You've been at games. Bring us yeah. back to it. You know, shoot me about Glasgow or shoot me about a match. I went to um, I was I went to a game once. Uh, they played um, Motherwell. It was, and I always remember. I'll never forget this. We went to um, went to the match. And I think I think it was it might have been, been a draw. This was the period when Rangers were on the nine in a row. Uh, sort of thing uh, and I left the game it was, it was, a, it was a full house then anyway and we went to um, a pub not far from the ground um, I, think, I think it would have been in, might have been in the Gobbles anyway we went to this pub with my mate my Glasgow sporting mate and my Welsh mate and my mate had a Wales top on uh, and another mate had a top with a Welsh dragon on it and um, they made a great fuss of us in this pub and I just but I always remember I, and I think this was something that I told myself this is different this is you know what I mean they started singing songs right after the game. Just people at the bar and it was packed like that. And they were banging the tables and all the rest just joining in. And I, without exaggeration, they sang for about three hours after the game in this pub. It was unbelievable. I've never experienced anything like it before or since. But they just, they, I don't know what happened that, in that match. But everybody started singing and people were buying us pints and saying, you know, great to have you. There was loads of Irish lads over. There were lads up from Manchester, I remember. There were some Geordies there, all Celtic fans. And like everybody making a fuss of us because we had some like Welsh stuff on. But I just remember they sang and sang and sang and they kept getting louder as well. So more and more songs they were singing. Do you know what I mean? And there were people just, and there was, there was a lad. I don't know how he managed to get it. You know, like a litter bin with a plastic top that you see like outside. He managed to get in this in there. It looked a bit like a, like a bloody Dalek. And he was banging it and he was making the noise of like drums. So he's banging his fucking thing perfectly in time with songs. 
And every time the song finishes, another song would start, and he'd start perfectly with it. And this went on for like three or four hours. I'll never forget it. It was just an amazing thing to experience. I was like, this is, like I said, this is more than a football club. This is more than you go to a football match. This is, this is family. This is history. This is supporters who've like, who, who go into a game means something so much more to them because of what, they, what this club what it cre- was created out of and everything else. And I felt it. I felt it in that pub. You know, I felt like I was in amongst people where it was everything. Match day was everything to them, you know? Yeah, there's, there's actually a little piece in the film that um, a Celtic fan talks about how much, you know, all he, we are Celtic. Everything. And I'm Celtic. We yeah. are him and I am Celtic. Yes. You know, it's all we talk about. But yeah. my dad walked in London, my brothers walked in London, and they were part of the London Irish. You know, there was a London yeah. Irish community. We have the American Irish. But for some reason, the Glasgow Irish isn't spoken about. It's the biggest, Celtic Park is the biggest monument yeah. to the, the the people who had to leave this country over generations yeah. through poverty or whatever, through the famine. The people that arrived, and here we have this monument, and yeah, we, you know, it's it's cool to talk about the London Irish or the American Irish, you know, but yeah, yeah. when did you ever hear, oh, the... That that politician is, is Glasgow Irish, and yeah. I think it's I think it's 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 sad because, and I think these people they know that they know that they're the biggest diaspora in Scotland, but yet they're not treated like a diaspora. And Celtic, you know, Celtic is like a big chapel. It's for, they all come together, and that pub that yeah. day, there probably yeah. was pubs like that all over Glasgow. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It was you probably know. one of like ten pubs doing the same yeah. thing. Do you know what I mean? But the commun the, the communal feeling of um, well, this is a uh, funnily enough, that's another Celtic lad ringing me. Um, but yeah, it's just like I just felt it. I just felt like that they really, really um, they let their hair down a bit. Like you said, this was their Saturday, this was their church, like you said, this was their chapel, this is where they were going to sort of like say, This is who we are. Do you know what I mean? This is who we are, this is where we can be ourselves. Yeah, in you know, in we're 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 amongst our own here. You know what I mean? It was, it was, I'll never forget it. And you hit the nail on the head when you said there was Jollies there, there was Welsh people, you know. It was. The Celtic have people, the diaspora is so big and like, it's just, you know, and I suppose I'm biased because I'm a Celtic fan, you know, but I didn't come yeah. from a Celtic, like my dad, when my dad lived in London, he tells the stories, you know, he went to see Tottenham one week, Arsenal the next yeah. week, Fulham. Yeah. He, could, yeah. he said it was, but again, it was, you know, it was a five and a half day week, so football yeah. was, you know, and it kind of like, the away days, you know, it wasn't a kind of a big thing then. No. He said, he said, no, you'd go to see Arsenal, you know, it's Tottenham the next week. You know, I didn't have a club. He says, I was, I just go because my, that's what you My done. father was exactly the same. So he's, he's, when, when we all got older and we started watching Cardiff, we'd go, I want to beat Swansea. He'd go, why? And i go, well, you know, they're rivals. And he'd go, we used to watch Swansea if they were home and then Cardiff the next week. And he couldn't, he couldn't get his head around it at all. Exactly like your dad, he would just go, because yeah. there was no way he'd travel then. Yeah. And that's one of the funny stories about Shankly. And I always remember it makes a lot of people laugh in Scotland. They famously asked Shankly who he supported, Celtic or Rangers. And he said, I like them both. And I'm like, only Shankly would get away with that because he just was a football nut. That's all he cared about was football. And, and if he had the if he had to went deeper into it, he would have said the working class are more uncommon than you know, he would have given yeah, it I know he would have. Yeah, I agree. I agree. He was like, ah, oh, I don't I just I like them both. Do you know what I mean? It's like of course he did, Bill. He just liked football. Do you know what I mean? It's great. So listen, you said you have a show on Talksport. I haven't listened to it. I'm, I'm gonna be honest. Tell us yeah. tell us yeah, what it is, when when it's on. And when we can it's on on um, it's on a Sunday every Sunday. It's on at nine o'clock for two hours. It's called Johnny Owen and Friends, and uh, and I talk about all the things I just spoke to you about, like football culture and all the rest of it and all that. Andrew, sorry, and I just I just talk about 
I just talk about the things we talk about, music, fashion, football, you know, and, and the culture around football. You know, I'm not there to talk about VAR. Don't worry about that. I talk about uh, I talk about the things we've just spoken about. So I hope Brilliant. people of our generation can enjoy it. Yeah, because and, and I, I actually sold it to me now, so I will turn in because uh, <laughs> to say... And does it come out as a podcast then? Can we can we download it? It does, yeah. So there's a podcast available as well. It's called um, My Best Eleven. So I do a, I do a section in there where I speak to people from um, the the arts. Uh, so people like Stephen Graham. I've had uh, Shane Meadows on. Rick Wakeman's been on, and I talk to them about their love of football and, and the, their favorite team and all the rest of it. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, listen, I talk up so much of time, and I, all right. All these podcasts are now becoming two parters and Ronan will kill me when I send it to him to, to, to produce. Thank you so much for coming on um, and bearing your soul to us because it's not a Celtic soul, but I'd say we'll say it's a Celtic soul. Yes, it is. It is indeed. But uh, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. I hope to see you at a game soon. Johnny, I, I hope to see anyone at a game soon. <laughs> good point, Andy. Well done, sir. Cheers, pal. Thanks very much. You're welcome, buddies. Johnny Owen. What a man. Oh, great to hear a working class man from a mining background doing so well in TV and film and music. You know, we never even got to speak about the 90s when he was playing in a band. And gosh, oh, maybe we'll get him on again to talk about his music and his film career and directing and producing. And, but I suppose we are a football podcast and it's just great to get someone that comes in and opens up like that. Never spoke to Johnny before and just felt like I, by the end of the conversation, I'd, I'd known him for years. Maybe it's because we share a few passions and uh, we grew up around the same time with the same backdrop, I suppose. Thanks to everyone who bought more than 90 minutes. Issue 113 is now available. The print edition came out last Friday and the digital issue is also available to download by visiting our website, shatlickfanzine.com and we'll also have the link, as always, in the podcast description. There's less than 20 copies left, folks, of the print edition, so with no match day sales, there is no print issue without the likes of yourselves splashing the cash, so thank you very much. As always, I have to thank my wonderful producer, Ronan McQuillan, for producing the next show and putting up with me with a few problems with my earphones and the sound on the interview, and of course, he was my knight in shining armour, came to the rescue and pushed the button on, which instead of off, because I am a technophobe. So folks, if you like what we're doing with the podcast and the fanzine and the website and bits and pieces we're doing and you would like to support us, you can do so by becoming a member, subscribe, buy or donate for the price of a pint. Don't forget to visit our website where you'll find our articles and news and you can also sign up for our newsletter, which we finally got around to doing a few weeks ago. We'd love to be doing it regularly, but we do have one or two weeks where we did forget to put it out, so apologies. Don't forget to download our app. That's free, and you'll have access to all podcasts, articles, daily news, video info, and upcoming events. If we ever get to do one, the fanzine and our online shop are at the touch of a button on your phone or tablet. The podcast app is called Celtic Fanzine and not Celtic Soul. Someone contacted me during the week and they couldn't find it. It's Celtic Fanzine. Follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Again, you can comment through all them. Keep the comments coming in and the suggestions for guests. A special thanks to our sponsors of the episode, Tony, Jed, Kieran and Eamon Ratton in Sunderland. And as they say, Celtic and Sunderland till they die. And very importantly, if your business, Celtic Supporters Club, or rich relative would like to sponsor the podcast, we would love you to sponsor the podcast. You can become a sponsor. And for more information, email us at info at or contact us through the website or message us on social media. And if you enjoyed this conversation with Johnny and you would like to listen to more of the same, 
Back in episode 5, we had Star of Love, Hate, Johnny Ward chatting to us. We've also had Johnny's former teammate on Shameless, Aaron McCusker, who spoke to us back in episode 17. And Gianni Capaldi opened up his Celtic soul to us in episode 31. This weekend, it's Ross County at Dingwall on Sunday midday kickoff. Normally, a tough one to secure a ticket for. Early bus up to the Highlands, bag of cans, text messages from the other bus conveners, re-police stops. The police are there to try and take your carry-out cargo off Celtic's most wanted. Great days. Bring them back quick before I go out and be nut. So it's another one in the armchair, folks, I'm afraid, after a long walk with Henrik Forst. So make sure you get out in that spring air, folks. The mornings are getting brighter. There's a little bit, of, as my mother would say, there's a good stretch in the evening and there's good drying out. So if you're feeling down, don't forget, folks, there's always there someone to talk to. Don't bottle it up. Talk about it. And enjoy your weekend as best you can under the current restrictions. Each episode, we like to lend our support to musicians and artists out there who have been hit the hardest by the lockdown restrictions. With no gigs and no venues. Folks, it's hard enough for us not to get out a few points and hear some music, but for these musicians, it must be hell because this is their bread and butter. So send your material, folks, and we'll give you a plug and play out of each show. So thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting us. Stay safe, folks, and keep the faith. And this week, we will play out with Rebel Roots, and we have a wee message from them. This song goes out to all those that have struggled this year and to all who have lost family and friends, no matter which club, creed or colour. Remember, at the end of the storm, there is a golden lion and you will never walk alone. So be considerate and remember in life and in football, form is temporary, class is permanent. Bill Shankly, hail, hail, you'll never walk alone. When you walk through the storm Hold your head up high And don't be afraid of the dark At the end of a storm There's a gold
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.